there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. The title of the first talk is A Principled Life. That is where one has to start if we're going to find tranquility. Now, I cannot imagine a worse place to search for tranquility than Southern California. <laughs> I'm from Massachusetts. Got some friends over here. It is a different world. Now, don't imagine for a moment that Massachusetts is a good place to search for tranquility either. There isn't a good place in this world. The only place to look is in the will of God. So you pretty much know what I'm going to say about that, I'm sure. But I think of that day back in 1956 when I was standing beside a shortwave radio in my jungle house in eastern Ecuador and received a radio message that my husband Jim was missing. It was a shock, but it wasn't a surprise, really. Even though we think we may be very realistic about future possibilities, if the worst happens, we're never quite ready for that because in the back of our minds there's always that thought, well, it really won't happen to me. And I knew that my husband and four other young men were in a very dangerous place, a place in which, into which many white people had gone, but none had ever been heard from again, the territory of a tribe of Indians in eastern Ecuador called Aucas, A-U-C-A. People had gone in there looking for oil and rubber and gold over the years. None had ever come back. So the people called Aucas had a very fearsome reputation. We didn't know much at all about them except that they killed strangers. They were Stone Age people, and they wore no clothes. But five men had believed that God was opening a door for them to go in there. He was not guaranteeing that they would come back. He was just saying, I want you to go. And I don't know if you people from Massachusetts live on the coast, as, as large as I do, but I learned from a coast guard that in every rescue station along the eastern coast, and I, this may be true in California too, but in every rescue station is posted this motto, you have to go out, you don't have to come back. Think about that as a motto for Christians. The coast guardsman, if he sees a ship in trouble, doesn't stand on the shore looking at the angry waves and the storm, scratching his head and saying, well, I wonder if I can make it back if I go out there. He's there to rescue, and he has to go out. Period. Case closed. And it's the same principle for a Christian, isn't it? We are not our own. 1 Corinthians 6.20 You are not your own, you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Another 
principle that the world would find absolutely infuriating. Right? We live in a world in which we're told every day in all kinds of powerful, inescapable, and insistent ways, you are your own. It's your body, it's your life, you have a right to your own body, even if that body contains another body that you don't have any rights over whatsoever. You must do your own thing. Ever heard that? Have it your way. You owe it to yourself. If it feels good, do it. If it doesn't feel good, forget it. And my Bible says, you are not your own. And that was the attitude of these five men. They had to go out because they were under orders. It was not their primary concern that they should come back. Of course they wanted to come back. Everyone was married. Four of the five were the fathers of young children. There were nine children under seven, and the orders were to go. So as I stood by the radio and learned that they were missing, I said, O oh Lord. And God brought to my mind immediately words from Isaiah 43, verse 2. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee, for I am the Lord thy God. And that is the first principle I want you to get hold of. Who God is. We're here to live a supernatural life in a very obviously natural world. A supernatural life in a natural body with natural emotions and natural temperaments and natural desires and natural personality traits and natural peculiarities and natural sins. Very natural sins. But we're supposed to live a supernatural life. So if there were any way to explain to those two security men that walked by in a casual way and wondered what this female church was doing in here, uh, it would take probably a long time to explain that we are people who are trying to live a supernatural life. And they would think, well, you know, California's full of weirdos, and this is just another bunch. And let's face it, we are, because our lives make no sense whatsoever in terms of this world's values. We are people whose lives make no sense except in terms of a different world. An invisible world, a different master, a different motive, a different set of principles, and therefore a different program. But we do live in a world in which people are desperately searching for tranquility. I see, I don't know anybody at all in this room. I don't know one story. But I could guess that if we had time to hear all the stories that are represented here, there would be probably a majority of you who would say that you are Christians, that you do know Jesus Christ, and yet you want more peace in your life than you have. You want more tranquility. 
more visible joy, more love, because we're all a very long way from being totally conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And those of you who would not make the claim that you are Christians, somebody maybe dragged you here today, said, you've got to come and hear this woman. Well, what woman? Well, Elizabeth Elliot. Well, who in the world is Elizabeth Elliot? Well, I don't know. I mean, like, you know, um, I don't know what you could say in answer to that question. But whatever your reason for being here, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I would be willing to bet, if I were a better, that you would like to have a little more tranquility in your life. I happen to be staying up in Mission Viejo, where my daughter lives. I've been there for a couple of weeks. I did this last year. I came to stay in a hotel just about a mile from her house where I can work in peace and quiet during the day, and then in the afternoons, late afternoon, I go over to her house where there are six children. <laughs> and uh, I have a chance to revel in my grandchildren for the afternoon and the evening. But my hotel is right on Route 5, at the junction of Route 5 and La Paz, and it's just unbelievable to me, because our house at home looks out on the Atlantic Ocean. Absolute silence. We have no traffic at all because it's a cul-de-sac. We hear nothing but the seagulls and the sound of the waves. And I look out my window any hour of the day or night, 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, here is this river of white lights going that way and red lights going this way, and just a roar. How are we supposed to find tranquility in a place like this? There is a secret. And I want to take you back to the scriptures, of course. What would be the point of me coming all the way across the country, let alone you taking off a Saturday, if all I had to talk about was Elizabeth Elliot's opinions or experiences? Some of you would come to hear my experiences, I'm sure. But what would you have to take home with you? All you could do is go out of here and say, well, that was very interesting. She's lived a very interesting life. You know, she's an interesting or something. But if I don't give you a principle that you can latch a hold of and which will be applicable to your life, your personality, your circumstances, and your particular individual search for tranquility, we would be wasting our time. So let's go to the first chapter of Matthew, this is Christmas season, and I want to read you Joseph's part of the Christmas story and then Mary's, and see what we can find in the way of principles here. Matthew 1, 18 to 25. This is the story of the birth of the Messiah. Mary, his mother, was betrothed to Joseph. Before their marriage, she found that she was with child by the Holy Spirit, being a man of principle, and at the same time wanting to save her from exposure, Joseph desired to have the marriage contract set aside quietly. Do you know why? Well, Joseph was a Jew. They were devout religious Jews. And both knew that the penalty for unfaithfulness, for fornication, for sexual sin, for, for sexual contact outside of marriage, in the Jewish law was death by stoning. But it says 
he was a man of principle. Undoubtedly, he loved his fiancée, Mary, but he knew that because she had been unfaithful, which apparently seemed to be the case, he would not marry her. He would put her away quietly, not to expose her to public censure, but simply to set aside in a tactful, quiet, private way the marriage contract. So we read, we understand from this that he was a principled man, obedient to the will of God, and also compassionate. And his desire was shaped by both his principle and his compassion. His love for God, his love for this woman, his desire to be righteous, and his desire to spare her whatever pain he could. So at that point, after that decision was reached that he was going to put her away, and it's interesting to me that it wasn't until Joseph had made up his mind that he was going to put her away. He, in other words, God, God knew that Joseph was going to be obedient. Then, it says, verse 20, he had resolved on this when an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, said the angel, do not be afraid to take Mary home with you as your wife. It is by the Holy Spirit that she has conceived. Don't imagine, Joseph, that she has been unfaithful to you. This was a supernatural revelation of a supernatural event. It's by the Holy Spirit that she has conceived with this child, and she will bear a son, and you shall give him the name. So the angel was already assuming that Joseph would trust his word and remain with her and be the father in the earthly sense. You shall give him the name Jesus, Savior, for he will save his people from their sins. All this happened in order to fulfill what the Lord declared through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and he shall be called Emmanuel, a name which means God with us. That's one of my favorite names of God, Emmanuel. God with us. Just imagine. Here in the town and country hotel convention center, God with you and me. That's what Christmas is about, isn't it? A celebration that he came down to live with us. So what does Joseph do in response to the word of God sent to him? Rising from sleep, Joseph did as the angel had directed him. I picture Joseph jumping out of bed, or jumping up from his pallet on the floor, whatever it was, immediately obeying. He had to do what God told him to do. All his fears had to be left with God, given to Jesus, given to him. It says he, he did as the angel directed him, rising from sleep. So whether it was the middle of the night that he got up to immediately do what the angel told him, we, we don't really know. But at any rate, it was when he woke up, he took Mary home to be his wife, but had no intercourse with her until her son was born, and he named the child Jesus. He did exactly what he was told to do. Now the story of Mary, Luke 1, verses 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God 
to a town in Galilee called Nazareth with a message for a girl betrothed to a man named Joseph. This is Luke 1, verse 27. A descendant of David. The girl's name was Mary. The angel went in and said to her, Greetings, most favored one. The Lord is with you. Can you imagine? I try to picture the scene. I've, I've been to Nazareth, as many of you have, and they point out a, a house that they tell you was Mary and Joseph's. I don't believe it for one second. <laughs> they tell you a lot of stuff in the Holy Land, but anyway, the town is full of, of very ordinary little stone or clay houses, and I picture that this girl was undoubtedly a poor girl. I think both Joseph and Mary must have been poor because we know what the offering was that they brought when Jesus was presented in the temple. It was a poor man's offering. So let's assume it was a humble home, and I would assume that she was maybe 15 or 16 years old, because that was the normal age in which a Jewish girl would be married in her time. So a humble girl, perhaps weaving or baking bread or sweeping the house or something, and suddenly this, I suppose, dazzling visitor comes in and says, Greetings, most favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by what he said and wondered what this greeting could mean. How would you feel if you're driving down the freeway and all of a sudden there's an angel in the seat beside you <laughs> saying, greetings, most favored one? You know, what would you do? She was deeply troubled. Then the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, and this is exactly what he said to Joseph too, wasn't it? For God has been gracious to you. You shall conceive and bear a son and you shall give him the name Jesus. He will be great. He will bear the title Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will be king over Israel forever. His reign shall never end. Imagine all that in one mouthful. How can this be, said Mary? I'm still a virgin. It's interesting to me that the sign of utter humility here. There was no thought of herself. I mean, she didn't even say, who am I to be called this? Who am I to be given this responsibility? <coughs> she wasn't even, as far as the scripture tells us, surprised that the angel came or at the honor that was promised. What surprised her was the meaning of the greeting and then how in the world this could possibly happen? She was still a virgin. And so the angel answers, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child to be born will be called Son of God. And then by way of bolstering her faith, he gives her a human uh, encouragement to faith. He said, moreover, your kinswoman Elizabeth has herself conceived a son in her old age. In other words, here's a miracle that you already know about, or that you can certainly con uh, confirm, and she who is reputed barren is now in her sixth month, for God's promises can never fail. Now with all those proofs and evidences that it is indeed God speaking to her. What is her response? Exactly like this up here. Here I am, said Mary. 
I am the Lord's servant. As you have spoken, so be it. Another translation says, let it happen as you say. I am the Lord's servant. Let it happen as you say. And I was struck by the words of one of the songs that was sung this morning. I want to serve you nothing more. Can you possibly sing that honestly? If you can, you have the secret of tranquility. I want to serve you, nothing more. And one of my mottos is, Lord, your will, nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. Nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. It takes humility. The world is constantly telling us another lie besides you are your own and you have a right to your body and all that. The world is constantly telling us to ask, who am I? To find out who we are. And to tell you the truth, I am up to here with that question, who am I? It is a dead-end street, ladies. And God, in my search to know him and my desire to do his will, has revealed to me more than who I more of who I am than I can stand. I don't want to find out anymore. We can't really bear a whole lot of reality at one time, can we? Sometimes people send me manuscripts or poems or songs and they say, I'd like to have your honest opinion. That is the last thing they want. You know, if I sent them my honest opinion then most of the well, shall I say, junk that people send me, uh, they would be highly offended. And if you want God's honest opinion of who you are, then just read what it says in the Bible. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And I want to accept God's estimate of me and the remedy. And God's estimate of me and of you is that we're sinners. Not one of us comes even close to the glory of God. And if you don't like that, and you haven't read your Bible enough to know that that's not just an Elizabeth Elliot opinion, I am giving you what the Bible says, let me ask you this. Have you ever set goals for yourself? Question number one. Question number two, did you reach them? Did you reach them in the time that you intended to? You know, we don't, we don't begin to live up to our own standards for ourselves, most of us. And I have a sneaking suspicion that if you do live up to your own standards, then your standards are much too low. <laughs> you need to raise those a little bit. We've sinned. And nothing that we can ever do is going to erase those sins, with one exception. There's one thing we can do, and that is to come to Jesus. His name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their what? Sins. Not their mistakes, not their failures, 
Not their little white lies and their errors, but their S-I-N-S. You know, the world is always trying to tone it down and make us feel good about ourselves and comfortable. And Don't let a guilt trip on me. I was talking yesterday to my son-in-law about this whole thing about laying guilt trips. You know, he and I both get accused of laying guilt trips on people. How can you give out the word of God and expect that nobody's going to feel guilty? If you, if you give out the word of God and nobody feels guilty, you probably haven't given it out very faithfully because we are guilty, aren't we? Psychiatry is constantly dealing with guilt feelings. But I have a friend who is a Christian doctor who used to be a psychiatrist, and he said, I quit psychiatry because he said they're always dealing with guilt feelings. And he said the reason for guilt feelings is guilt. And there's only one remedy for guilt. I'm quoting my friend, the doctor, now. He said, there's only one remedy for guilt. What is it? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Modern psychiatry? Feeling good about myself, building my self-esteem, trying to do better. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So we have to get sorted out about the principles on which our lives are based. What are the unchangeables in your life? What are the anchors of your soul? What are the principles on which you make your decisions? Now, there is nothing that will simplify your life more powerfully and visibly and consistently than a principled life. And once you have made up your mind to do this, to give it all to Jesus, that just answers about a thousand questions that we're always answering. You know, it's amazing how we'll do anything but give it up. We'll try all sorts of ways of hanging on to things. But Lord, you're not going to take this, are you? You wouldn't invade this little tiny corner of my life, would you? I mean, can't you let me keep this one little thing? And of course, the, the only reason that God wants that little corner of your life is because that corner is what will destroy you. And he wants to do what? He wants to save you. He doesn't want to destroy you. Couldn't tell you how many times people have said to me, oh, the will of God, it just seems so scary. Because everything I want, I think, well, it can't be the will of God. And the will of God cuts across everything I want. Well, I heard a good story about a Scottish preacher to whom a young woman came, and she said, it just looks to me as though in this particular matter, my deepest desire, the deepest desire of my heart is contrary to what God is saying to me. She said, I just can't bear it. How can I reconcile my desire to do God's will and my desire to do this thing which doesn't look to be his will? And so the preacher, in great wisdom, handed her a piece of paper. He said, I'm going to write two words on this piece of paper, and I want you to take it to the back of the room and cross out one of those words and then come back and talk to me. So she looked at the piece of paper as she sat down in the back of the room, and it said, No, Lord. And as she thought about it, she realized that you can't say, 
know and say, Lord. And you can't say, Lord, and say no. Which did she want? Her way or God's way? Jesus said, why do you call me Lord and do not the things that I say? If you want to follow me, you must give up your right to yourself. Can you imagine selling that idea in the 1990s? In the world we live in? Can you imagine going around Southern California and saying you must give up your right to yourself, you must give up your right to yourself, you must give up your right to yourself? They will think you're batty. And of course you are, in terms of the world's values. You've got to climb over everybody else to find self-fulfillment and self-actualization and self-expression and self-this and self-that and self-the-other thing, and you owe it to yourself and, you know, nothing could be more diametrically opposed. This is the will of God. This is the will of the world. And what does it make? A cross. When the will of God cuts across the will of man, somebody has to die. Jesus did just that, didn't he? For you and me. So the secret of tranquility is the recognition of who he is. I am the Lord. I love you. I died for you. Don't be afraid. And when the Lord sent his angel, and I believe that in, in the scripture very often when it says the angel of the Lord, what it means is the Lord himself came to Joseph, a humble, godly man, gave him a shocking message. And he said, don't be afraid. And he came to a humble, godly girl, and he said, don't be afraid. Don't ever be afraid of the will of God. And what was Mary's response? A total, unhesitating, unreserved, surrender. Here I am, Lord, your handmaiden. Let it happen, as you say. Anything you say, Lord, nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. Now, if God's word, God's will, God's way, God's life, is the principle of your life. So many things will be simplified. You don't have to agonize over a thousand decisions because a decision will already be made. What does God want you to do? My son-in-law had a man call him one day. He was in a different state, a different church. And the man said, I've got to talk to you. He wasn't a member of my son-in-law's church. And so Walt made an appointment with him and the man came over and he started his long, long story. Well, it didn't take more than five minutes for my son-in-law to recognize what was coming, that here was a married man with children who was in love with somebody else's wife who also had children. And so when he gets through his hour, hour and a half of detailed business, my son-in-law sat there in silence, and the man sat in silence, and Walt said, is that all? And he said, well, yeah, isn't that enough? Walt said, but didn't you tell me on the phone you had a problem? He said, yes. Walt said, what's the problem? We said, what do you think I should do? 
He said, you know what to do. You didn't have to come to me. You know what God's word says. Cut it out. Quit. Repent. Turn around. Go back to your wife and your children. Leave the other man's wife and her children. Confess it. Forsake it. And follow Jesus. That doesn't take very long, does it? Say that. And it doesn't take very long to do it either. Now the world would tell you, well, you know, you got to work through your feelings for a couple of years on something like this. You got to really try to feel good about yourself. And of course, there's a very good reason why you feel so rotten about yourself because you are guilty. And the man knew perfectly well that he was guilty, and he didn't want to go to his own pastor because he knew what his own pastor would say. He hoped that this guy down the road would tell him what he wanted to hear. Or Walt said, you came to the wrong man. Because I'm going to tell you what God says, and you knew that all along, and your decisions are simplified. The secret of tranquility is to know who your master is and to do what he says. Now, I have been single most of my life, even though Lars Grant is husband number three. And my second husband died of cancer, and Lars is feeling fine this morning, as far as I know. But for all you single women, I, I, I know how you feel. I, I know how you feel if you've never been married, because I was not married until I was 26 the first time, which in my day was a long time to be an old maid. Nowadays, men don't even seem to be thinking about getting married until they get their late 30s and 40s, and suddenly they realize that life has passed them by, and then they wake up and finally, at long last, start thinking about, well, maybe they should get married, but then they pass over all the 30 and 40-year-olds and they marry somebody 20. <laughs> but the point that I'm making is that in my singleness, Deep down in my heart, even though I am a strong, independent, very willful, very aggressive, anything but naturally submissive woman, <laughs> there isn't an atom of natural submission in me, what I knew I really wanted was a man who would take care of me and tell me what to do. Now that strikes somebody over here as being very funny. <laughs> Hilariously funny, isn't it really? I mean, who wants anybody to tell you what to do? Of course, we're all full of contradictions because we're going to say, nobody is going to tell me what to do. I am going to do my own thing any way I have to do it. But there is that other side of us, that deeply feminine side which I believe is there. It may be buried very deep in some of you, but I do believe that it's there. The world has piled a whole lot of junk on top of it so you can hardly find it. But once God has given me a husband, which he has done three times and twice taken them away after very brief marriages, I am not responsible for all the decisions anymore. And it's a great release. It is a liberation. Because my Bible tells me that I am to submit to my husband. Now that's not nearly as odious and painful as the world would make you think. 
because it's a relief to me to know that once Lars and I have discussed things, and we do discuss things, that's not what submission means, I don't think, that you don't ever open your mouth and tell your husband what you would like to do or what you think is the right course and do it tactfully and kindly and politely. And I'm not always tactful and kind and polite. I don't think you're looking at a, at a paragon of virtue here. But we do discuss things. And if, when we've finished, and I have put my case as clearly as I can, that I think his decision is a mistake and that mine is the right one, <laughs> then I can just, what, give it all to Jesus and say, now, Lord, you have to make him make the right decision. <laughs> and I was talking to a friend of mine just a few weeks ago, a man who's been married one year to wife number two. He was married to his first wife about 53 years. So you can imagine the adjustment to marrying a second wife. And he's now 80 years old. And he was sitting at my breakfast table just raving about how wonderful this year of marriage has been to, uh, to wife number two. Just singing her praises. And so I was saying to him, you know, I'm always having to talk about this business of headship because it comes up again and again and again. What do you think it means? And this man is a deep Bible student and a very, very godly man. And he just looked out the window at the ocean, sort of blankly, and he said, well, I don't think I've ever thought about it very much. And I said, you, a Bible student? Oh, well, he said, the reason I never have had to think about it very much is because it's so plain. It's right there in the Bible. He said, there isn't any question that a husband is the head of the wife. And I said, okay, but what does it mean? And he looked earnest and thoughtful for a minute. He said, well, certainly it means protection, doesn't it? A husband is supposed to protect his wife. I said, what about if there's a disagreement between the two of you? What does your headship mean then? And he said, well, there was a disagreement between my first wife and me many, many years ago, early in our marriage. And he said, she knew what God's word said. And so she just said to me, uh, he said to her, well, You've given me some things to think about here that I hadn't thought about. This is the way I looked at it, but, well, I'm just going to have to make the final decision, aren't I, because I'm the head. And she said, you've got to get it right. You've got to get it right. Because I'm under you. And he said, that has helped, that helped us throughout this whole 53 years. He said, I knew the solemnity of my responsibility to get it right before God. Now in this Christmas season, is there peace and tranquility on earth? Not according to the newspapers and the TV, but there is peace in my heart, in the hearts of many of you, and tranquility, because I'm under somebody else's authority. If not a husband, and many of you don't have husbands, we are all, as Christians, under the authority of Jesus Christ. He is the Lord, Lord of my life. The rule of my life is he is Lord. I am his servant. Just what Mary said, behold the handmaid of the Lord, let it happen as you say. I give it all to Jesus. Think of the tranquil people that you know. Do you know anybody that just sort of brings peace 
into a room when they come in. I do. I know a lot of godly people. There's just something wonderful about the tranquility that characterizes their lives. I think of Corrie Ten Boom, a woman whose life was massively interrupted by being put into prison camp, concentration camp, where her father died in 10 days, her sister starved to death. But those of you who saw her in the flesh or have seen her in the movie or have read her books, recognize that here was a woman who just exuded joy, peace, and love, and tranquility. What was the secret? An absolute acceptance of the will of God. Joy. Think of Eric Liddell. I don't know if he's the one that is supposed to be mentioned in this Twyla Paris song. He is no fool, but the man who ran for God and gave up the possibility of a gold medal in the Olympic Games because of a ridiculous little religious scruple, as the world would look at it. He would not run that crucial race on Sunday. If there was a man totally at peace, it wasn't a difficult decision. Those of you that have seen the movie Chariots of Fire, you do not see Eric Little agonizing with 39 of his closest friends over this decision. The minute he gets off the boat, finds out that the race is on Sunday, the decision is made. Why? Why was it simple? Because Jesus Christ was Lord of his life. He knew what to do. Mary and Joseph had nothing to do but the will of God. And I want to read to you a quotation from a little book that I have here. I never heard of E.B. Pusey before, but there are a lot of his quotations in here. Whatever thy grief or trouble be, take every drop in thy cup from the hand of Almighty God. He with whom the hairs of thy head are all numbered knoweth every throb of thy brow. Each hardly drawn breath, each shoot of pain, each beating of the fevered pulse, each sinking of the aching heart. Receive then what are trials to thee, not in the main only, but one by one from his all-loving hands. Thank his love for each. Can you do that? Unite each with the sufferings of thy Redeemer. Pray that he will thereby allow them, that pray that he will thereby hallow them to thee. Thou wilt not know now what he thereby will work in thee. And I would put in here, it's none of our business. Yet day by day shalt thou receive the impress of the likeness of the ever-blessed Son. And in thee too, while thou knowest it not, God shall be glorified. The secret is receiving it all from his loving hands, giving it all to him and receiving it all from him. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today and will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, Remember, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms.